I think I've come upon the most American thing I buy on a regular basis that I should introduce you to. Is it a gun-related item? Well, you could definitely hold your gun. They're 5'11 tactical pants. Tactical pants, Alex. All of the pockets you could ever need. So you know how you were saying you want to go on a walk, but you don't like to bring your phone? It's because you need a pair of tactical pants. They have pockets in places that distribute the weight so that you don't even feel it. Big old phones, like the big old phones you get, all go in the tactical pants. You need to try some of these. They're not that expensive. Hashtag no sponsor. I'll put a link in the show notes. What are they made out of, though? Because like a lot of these tactical, oh, I can't say it, tactical trousers. I can't say, I can't, I can't call them pants. These tactical trousers, they, they're often made out of the same material as like a sail, you know, like on a sailboat or something. Sure. Like really thick. Yeah. Real thick. Doesn't, doesn't wrinkle. Man, these are constructed using a premium polyester cotton mechanical stretch tactile rip strop fabric. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> Sounds like a fancy marketing term to me. <laughs> it is, but it's really great. I just, I got to say, plus the other thing. If you're like me, uh, they have elastic in the waist, so uh, it expands and detracts with you uh, because that's something I'm always doing. Anyway, I'm just saying, try it out. They're only 30 bucks. Are they revolutionary and were they made with courage? Mine were. I don't know about yours. So I, I just think with your big phones, I think, I think you'd appreciate it. I just one, one American uh, bit, bit of life that I've adopted is tactical pants. Okay. I quite <laughs> like, I mean, you know, in Raleigh over here, I need, I need shorts. From like March, I've been in perma shorts, which is lovely. Speaking of that, I just had a chance to see you. You and I just got back from visiting Wendell in Lexington, and it was fantastic. We did some road tripping. It was a lot of fun. Um, and we had a chance to really kind of look at business setups, small and medium-sized business setups. So Wendell does some contracting, and one of the things that he does for his clients is he backs up parts of their infrastructure on his own. So if they're in the cloud, he'll back it up locally, and if they're local, he'll back it up to the cloud. Well, we thought maybe we should chat about some lower cost setups today because this is an area that I've recently gotten into. I, I used to be a build it as big and powerful as possible kind of guy. You know, I go to Unix surplus. I got a huge super micro box, put all of the Xeons, put all of the RAM, put all of the disk in there and fired up. You sent me the best text this week. Alex, I've accidentally ordered two servers. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I really had a moment. Uh, so uh, the Raspberry Pi 4 shows up on my doorstep in, in an envelope. And I'm just thinking, wow, my server shut up in an envelope. That's just, that's just something else. I'm, I'm picturing Steve Jobs' MacBook Air Manila envelope moment here. <laughs> right, yeah. And I, so I rip open the envelope and I realized there's two Raspberry Pis in there. And then I really was floored because not only had my home server been delivered in an envelope, but I had accidentally ordered two of them and I wasn't financially ruined. <laughs> you know, years ago, I could spend for a client or for wherever I worked, easily spend $15,000 on an x86 rack mountable server. Easily. Sure. I mean, even if you're looking at used enterprise gear, the minimum price of entry is going to be three or $400, I would have thought. Like an old think station, maybe, or you know, anything with a Z on in it. Sure. You know, you can build them for two, two fifty, but uh, it's going to be a bit of a potato at that point. Right. Well, depending on how you do it, you could probably, for well under a grand, get a decent NUC setup with some storage. So there's a lot of ways you can go about this, but I actually am doing something kind of special. I'm a little excited to announce here on the show that I'm beginning a new personal project 
I am so serious about this that I'm actually taking time off throughout the rest of the year to work on this project and do little bits. It's called Project Off Grid. But you know it's serious when it has a name. I know. I've named it. <laughs> as as longtime listeners will know, uh, I've got a uh, I've got a forty foot RV that over the years I've been I've been experimenting with. I've had a QNAP NAS in there. I've tried different things, and I've really come to um, this idea that I want to build a system where I can go completely off grid. And I've set myself some goals, but it starts at at the tech level. I want all of my home automation to be completely on the land, no cloud connectivity required because. I often travel places that don't have connectivity. Now, that's an important thing, right, is not required, although there are will be optional components which will interface with cloud services on occasion, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, it's sort of like I'll, I'll come back online and I'll sort of soak up the things that I needed. Maybe it's media files or art articles. And then and then as I drive down the road, I can sync those offline. And then when I get to my destination, they'll be available for me. So this includes things like offline readers, offline media. And it means getting things like sensors and all of these that work on the LAN. But it also needs to be, because it's in a very small living space, it needs to be quiet. It needs to be low power. In fact, ideally, one day even run entirely off of DC which eventually would be powered by solar, all part of this project. It's a multi-phase project, this project off-grid. Currently, I'm trying to solve this traveling without signal issue. Also, I'm often double-netted either by a campground or even just the ISP I have in my hometown. I'm, I'm on a 192 network all the time. It's horrible. It is so limiting. Um, so that's why I'm going to do a WireGuard relay server, but we'll get to that in the future. Because you have a, a really interesting like life problem to solve here. I mean, most of us, most of our houses don't drive down the freeway and suffer a, a was it, a Category 5 earthquake every time it does. Yeah, I think it's actually 4.7 on the Richter scale is what they Richter say. Richter scale. Category is hurricanes. Sorry, right. brain. <laughs> yeah, most of us don't have to deal with that. So I think it's a really unique set of challenges you're going to have to deal with. But on top of that, um, I've just sold my house in London, so I'm going to be buying a house in America next year at some point. So a lot of these things that you're going to solve, I'm just going to lift and shift and copy and paste those into my my house. Solar's on my list, for example. I want to do some DIY Tesla Powerwall-style stuff with old laptop batteries and things. So, so that, that should be a lot of fun. Um, but I'm really curious uh, about this setup from a networking standpoint. So as it stands today, you get your internet through a little antenna on your roof that comes from a hillside like two miles away, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a wisp. So in my main, what you could consider a home base where I spend the most of my time and I have like full hookups and everything, I have a monthly ISP that's just a local ISP that comes in over a wireless link. It's a decent, it's like a 15 megabit up and down connection, so it's not amazing, but I can get things in and off my LAN at reasonable speeds. That then comes into something that you tipped me off to that I think is a pretty great little device. It's the GLAR750S Gigabit AC Travel Router. It's tiny. It, or it's also called the Slate. It's another term for it. It's about the size of a pack of playing cards, I would say. Maybe a little bit bigger, but not much. Um, it's certainly in the same ballpark as a Raspberry Pi in a case. And... Um, yeah, this thing I tipped you off because I, I stupidly left my predecessor to this in a hotel room in Florida last month. Um, so I had to buy a replacement. And this this little travel router is is wicked, 
right? It has several cool features, um, but it supports out of the box, no custom foam is required, WireGuard. Mm-hmm. Huge. This thing's running open WRT. It has WireGuard support, plus it has BGN and AC 802.11 and three gigabit network ports. So here's my use case for this device. I um, I'm traveling a fair bit, so I'm going around different hotels and things like that. And I use this thing to um, make the captive portal experience less painful. Um, so when I get to a hotel, I'll plug this little device into a USB battery bank or a, a wall charger or whatever it might be. It, it doesn't really need much power. And then I will connect to the um, SSID that this little box spits out. When I do that, I can then connect to a, a, a local IP address, which I think is 192.168.8.1. Um, that's the subnet by default that it has. I then log into the admin interface of this little travel router thing and then go into what's called the Wi-Fi repeater section. And when you do that, what you're able to do is actually look at all the SSIDs that are broadcast in the place that you're in, select the one that you want the router to associate with, and then perform the captive portal on your laptop as if you were connected directly to that access point. And that has a few benefits because it means devices that don't support captive portals natively will pick up that authentication token via the router because it's the router effectively that's authenticated via its MAC address. And then it also means that hotels that try and nickel and dime you through a two device limit, I can connect 20, 30, 40. Not that I have that, of course, but you know, I have five or six devices when I travel sometimes between my wife and I, and a two device limit's just so annoying. And this little device gets me around it. But uh, to add to all that as well, when you add in a VPN support at the router level, it means that any traffic that traverses through that device then goes through a VPN as well. So most hotel Wi-Fi is open and leaky, and this device just solves that problem perfectly. So it supports OpenVPN and WireGuard. So whatever your flavor is, you can make it work with this device. That WireGuard support's a big deal for me because I'm often on what I consider untrustworthy lands. Campground Wi-Fi is very commonly just sort of thrown together. It's it's one flat LAN. Everybody just has at it. And being able to isolate my systems from that as well as use WireGuard to protect the traffic is really nice. So I have it in my standard home base mode. It's going into that uh, wireless ISP over Ethernet. It actually is, um, you know, it comes off the back of the antenna as Ethernet. That goes into the slate. And that's how I'm using it right now. But when I travel, I use that Wi-Fi repeater mode to either connect to a MiFi, and I will just choose whichever MiFi has the best signal, and then I just connect it to that, um, or campground Wi-Fi. And it's surprisingly fast. The specs of it aren't incredible. It, it has a 775 megahertz CPU, but, you know, OpenWRT doesn't need much. And uh, I've offloaded some of the um, larger network tasks to other devices, which I'll talk about here in a moment. But it's pretty neat. And again, it's DC. So everything in my setup right now, although a lot of them are using AC to DC adapters, but all of them are capable of doing just straight DC in the future. Because I I essentially have a power wall built into my RV. I've got two lithium-ion batteries right now, which will last me about 16 hours. It's amazing. But I plan to double that in, in the future, maybe when I go to solar. Um, so I could maybe get you know quite a bit of time. And if I can save that cost of converting to AC, 
I'll get even more time. I can go off grid. Yeah, little five volt USB. I think it's is it micro USB is all it needs. Um, it's great, and you know, it's, so this this little box has a couple of other tricks up its sleeve. It has three gigabit ports on the back. Two of them are designated as LAN ports out the box, and the third is what's called a WAN port. So the example I gave in a hotel where you connect over a repeater to uh, the Wi-Fi, you just plug in an Ethernet cable and you can then use this router as a a Wi-Fi to Ethernet adapter, if you like. Oh, yeah. also has a USB port on the side, so you could plug in a USB modem or an Android phone and use that to tether via this device to all of your other devices. Uh, and then the last trick that it has up its sleeve is it has a micro SD slot in the side of it. Additionally, it comes with a really easy to use GUI, but they include a more advanced power user GUI that's just uh, in the advanced section. So they don't, they don't bury it. And then on top of that, you can turn on SSH and then you're on the command line and you can do anything. So it's not limited either. It looks like a very bootstrap kind of UI to me. So it's, it's quite modern. It's responsive. Yeah. So this device, I think I paid about 60 or $70 for it. And uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's a really great pickup, to be honest. And I think I'm going to try and um, keep hold of this one and not leave it in a hotel this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really like it. I have had some compatibility issues with an AT&T MiFi where the MiFi would crash but when I switched it over to use the 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi, it seemed to get a little bit better. So just uh, test it, but I love it. And I'm, I'm keeping it. It's part of my network arsenal now. So that's I've got that set up. And then I have a Wi-Fi system that I need to replace eventually. But we can save Wi-Fi for a future episode because it, it works right now. What do you use at the moment? Can we name and shame it? I, I really like it. So I don't want to shame it. It just has a fatal flaw. So I got, before Amazon purchased them, I got the Eero system, the E-E-R-O. Mm-hmm. Its fatal flaw is that it does require some level of cloud connectivity occasionally to function properly. Is that not true of the Ubiquiti stuff as well? Because I know that I have to run my um, Ubiquiti controller in a, in a container and to configure the access points. I mean, I, I have never left it offline for more than a few days. Is that true of the Eero too? Well, so here's the way it works with the Eero, and that's why it's a fatal flaw. Like what you're talking about can be from like a licensing check-in or stuff like that. But with the Eero, if it loses its state for some reason and it loses power, which can happen when I'm, say, switching from one power source to another every now and then there's a hit to the system. Maybe I'm going from generator to, to battery or from shore to battery. And that brief interruption can sometimes reset systems. When that happens, in some situations, if Eero cannot contact their cloud servers, it won't start the LAN. Why? What possible reason could they have for that? Because it assumes its state is invalid, because there's some, there's some signing that has to happen between the communication of the head unit and the nodes, and when that signing can't be verified, it doesn't start up the LAN as a safety measure. Safety, right. I'm not buying that, I'm sorry. It's just a telemetry thing, if ever I heard of it. I knew this going in. I knew it was a bad call, but it is truly the fastest, most reliable, most problem-free Wi-Fi I have ever used. So going forward, it's the Wi-Fi systems I'll buy for all of my family. Like if, like as a Christmas gift, if they need Wi-Fi every now and then, like every like five years, I'll do this. This is what I'm getting them. And Amazon's bringing the price down even more now. It's so bulletproof. However, 
I got to go with something that's offline. And the and the funny thing is the RV has a lot of interference. So I actually need a two-node system to get great signal everywhere to do video streaming. <laughs> it's bulletproof unless your internet goes out and then you're screwed. So, okay, I wasn't <laughs> going to go down that rabbit hole, but you made me do it. But it's, it's, it's otherwise a good system, but it eventually has to get replaced if I'm going to go off grid. Uh, but right now, uh, for the last few months, um, almost coming on month three, uh, I have I have gone down the route of decloudifying the RV and bringing everything onto a single Raspberry Pi, of which I run Home Assistant, Smoke Ping, Duplicati, Sync Thing, Plex, and Rantio. All right, so let's let's break these down one by one. The one that stands out to me as being like a huh is Plex because doesn't that need big CPU to transcode stuff? I am taking advantage of the of Raspbian on the Raspberry Pi four, and it does have hardware decoding, and there is there is support now in Plex for for that. But when you're just talking three televisions and a max of six users ever, it's really surprisingly not that bad. The Raspberry Pi has more overhead than you'd think. With all of those services running on that, I'm around eight percent CPU usage, and then when I'm maybe doing uh, like last night, I was doing a Docker Compose update, watching Star Trek, the original series, uh, Blu-ray rip off of the Raspberry Pi Plex. Direct play, I assume? Uh, to an NVIDIA Shield, so I'm pretty positive it was direct play. As well as doing package updates after the Docker stuff was done. Like I was doing all of that on the host system while also watching Plex. And I was tearing down a container as well. So I was doing quite a bit, and it was really holding its own. The The biggest bottleneck is really the SD card. It makes all of the difference to spend a little bit more on that SD card. It really makes a difference. <laughs> so I, I was experimenting during LUP recording this week with, with my Pi 4, and I copied the root uh, directory, so just slash, like the, the bottom of root, using rsync. Uh, I think I did it was rsync, TAC AVX or something like that. Um, and then you do slash and then the target of the SS, USB SSD that I had attached. And I noticed that when I was doing package updates and stuff like that, it wasn't it wasn't night and day. You know, like going from a, a mechanical hard drive to an SSD was like, whoa, holy moly, this is, I'm never going back to spinning Rust as my boot drive. It wasn't quite as night and day as I'd hoped on there, but you are right that the SD card is the major bottleneck at this point. Mm-hmm. And you can't yet USB boot the Pi fully. So um, I must I must make it clear that my slash boot was still on the SD card, even though slash was actually on the SSD. But yeah, running you're running what there? Is that six or seven? Six different containers. That are fairly active, really. I mean, they, I mean, including there's a couple of things on the host system, like Samba and NetData that aren't in containers. And only 8% CPU usage. I remember on the first Pi trying to run... Uh, what was it called? XBMC with, I think it was RaspBMC with Sam Nazarko back in the day. And, uh, you know, trying to run just a single HD video stream. It was so bad. The CPU was just pegged and I had the MPEG-2 decoder license I paid extra for and it was just pegged. And yeah, we've come a long way with these pies. How, um, so I have a question for you about how warm that, that your pie is getting. Yeah, there's that. So I think a couple of caveats here. Um, I've gone with the flirt cases for my pies. Um, and not only because I think it's a really sturdy case, but because it has some thermal management built in it, it comes with thermal paste and then the case actually makes contact with the CPU and that thermal paste and it acts as a heat spreader. And, um, I watched a few uh, reviews on YouTube and it, you know, brings it down an actual measurable, noticeable, worthwhile amount. 
I'm also using the Flickr case and the whole thing is made out of, well, the side of it is made out of aluminium, machined aluminium. And the, uh, the inside of the case actually dips down to touch the CPU with a thermal pad. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. Yeah. And then the top and bottom are made out of this kind of soft touch rubber material. And the case itself was 15 bucks, which I paid $15 for a Lego case a few years ago. So, you know, price wise, it's, it's for what you're getting is fantastic. It takes the Raspberry Pi, which on its own, naked, just sort of feels like a hobbyist toy, and you put it in this case, and now it feels like a premium consumer product. So I did that uh, to help reduce heat. Also, a big part of this is um, I I really think having the Ethernet on its own bus and, and having the network separate now from the disk made – it wasn't just the CPU, but that was the other piece that made this really doable for me. Gigabit is – closer now to full gigabit than it ever has been but also when you're doing network traffic it's not polluting the usb bus which is where with a pi the majority of your storage is going to live so yeah i totally agree with that now um in your list of applications you mentioned something called ranteo i've never heard of this what is it oh boy this is one of those life-changing applications that i found Uh uh-oh it's like i've finally come home i'm i've finally have a note system that truly works for me. And it's fully offline. It supports Markdown. I can bang out notes in any old dirty text editor I want, or I have a web UI. Hallelujah, this is changing my life. And the secret that really brought it to the next level was when I combined it with SyncThing. Oh, man. Oh, Alex, this is such a game changer for me. SyncThing, huh? Not next cloud sync. You know, it's there's so many ways you can skin this cat, really. So that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, if Nextcloud works for you, have at it. I, I use Nextcloud for my work stuff. I wanted um, something that was totally offline, available as text in the RV at all times because I'm going to put maintenance logs in there, uh, information about repairs, all the documentation for my network, uh, family notes that Hadi and I need to keep track of, like doctors' names, all that. I want to have available offline. And the way my brain works is if I can dump out something in text, I'm much more likely to capture it. And I prefer to use an actual text editor. So Rantio, or however you say it, Rantio, whatever it is, is a very simple web UI that sits on top of a directory structure of markdown files. You can create arbitrary directories. You can just add markdown files. You can add markdown files to the root. And then it will render and display it like notes. No database? No database. Just flat files. That's great. That's where sync thing comes in because then I sync those flat files to a notes folder on all my systems. And wherever I'm at, whenever something pops in my head, I just toss in that notes folder and then it's on my RV. Either when it comes back online or like right now it's online so it's just synced up immediately. And then when I want to retrieve it or more importantly, when I want high spousal approval factor for retrieving information, it's got a nice web UI on top of it. I don't know why notes is such a difficult problem to solve. It seems to me that Evernote solved it a long time ago, but you have to pay for that and it's a a cloud service, right? But in terms of the self-hosted space for note-taking, there's a few options. So there's Joplin, there's Nextcloud has a notes thing built right in. I mean, you could use Git if you wanted to. I mean, literally the, the options are endless. But I think a couple of things that you mentioned really spiked my interest. And one of those is... There's no database, so it's a flat file structure. 
a lot of apps seem to miss that fact because I want my notes to remain agnostic to the application which they were written in or for or synced by. Also, a perfectly usable uh, scenario for me would be I SSH into my server and I just cat the file to get a quick like command I need to copy or something. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, I guess you could back it up with Git and it still remains viewable by Ranteo or whatever it is. Does it support like rich stuff like pictures or screenshots or stuff like that? Yep, it has a content folder and you can toss, uh, it has content, that's where you toss the markdowns and it has images and that's where you toss the images and then you just, you know, you link back one folder and it just, it figures it out. It's really easy. But you might have gone and done it. You might have gone and found it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've reached peak services to Pi. Um, a, it's now becoming a little mission critical and B, if any one of those were to go haywire, it could slow down the other. So I think I'm going to stop about there. And now I'm going to go to a second pie. And my plan is to, to go to three pies total. No more than three. And you're not going to run Kubernetes on those and do some fun stuff with that? I might let you talk me into that in the future. I might. We could. I need to buy a couple so I can figure it out first and then make myself look clever by telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Great, good plan. I put my So I put my second pie into production last night. This will be a dedicated network services pie. So this now runs Piehole. And I may move smoke ping and a couple other just like network level infrastructure things to that pie. Smoke ping's pretty cool. You you put me onto this way before you knew who I was um, with a last episode about five or six years ago. And it was actually one of the first containers that Linux server did back in the day. Such a good app. You get the best insights. And for me, it's really interesting to see how the different networks that I go to perform. I go to bed and I wake up in the morning, I check smoke ping and I go, ah, Okay, it's going to be one of those days. <laughs> now, there's another one that's actually come onto the scene fairly recently called StatPing. Um, so I have it running on a DigitalOcean droplet, and I, I use it to monitor things like service uptime. It's like a, a alert genie, ops genie type thing, where it will ping a certain IP over either TCP or HTTP and just tell you whether the service is up or down. Um, you can also use it to communicate with family members that there is planned maintenance coming on the Plex server, for example, which can be nice. So, you know, if, if some, if I'm needing to swap out a hard drive or, um, blow dust out of a fan or something and turn the server off for a half an hour, I can just put a note into stat ping to say server off between these times. Don't message me about this thing. Cause it's, it's not an accident. The other really cool thing about StatPing is it's a really quick way to see the last time a service had an issue because it just tells you right there when you load the page. The last time this went down was at this time and date. And we use that here in the, in the studio to check on our services. If you want to see a quick demo, you can go to status.ktz.cloud. That's mine. And you can have a little look at that. Um, so what else you got on that list? You've got Home Assistant, which I think definitely deserves its own episode. Yes. That's the primary function of the Pi 4, really. But Duplicati, what are you using that for? I'm using that to back up my Docker Compose files and my config files and a little bit of data to both Dropbox and Google Drive. I don't really use either one of those very much, but this is kind of an, I have, you know, amounts of storage in each, each one of them, and we're talking text files here. So it does a, AES-256 encryption. It, you know, wraps it all up into, into a nice locally encrypted uh, bit bit of bundles, essentially, and then sends it up to the cloud and um, does it every single night. So if I make just even the smallest line change, I make sure that gets captured and sent off site. 
I really like Duplicati. I've been using it for over a year over here as well, and it's it's pretty bulletproof. I mean, it, the, the error message can error messages can sometimes be a little bit vague, but for the most part, it's it's pretty great. And I use it to back up terabytes worth of data to Google Drive, so it's um, pretty good. I was considering putting my Docker Compose folders in the sync thing and then just syncing them to different folders on my laptop and then doing the changes there. I have to say, when you're working with Docker Compose, which we'll talk about more in uh, Jupyter Extras in the near future, we're going to do some container essentials in a future Jupyter Extras, so extras.show for that. But I have to say, when I'm working with Docker Compose files, Visual Studio Code blew my mind. I opened up the .yaml file and it's like, oh, hey, I noticed this looks like a Docker compose file. Would you like me to load Docker support? And then it it really helps with identifying where things need to go in the YAML file because if you just have it on the wrong indent, it'll break Docker compose and it won't launch. And so this gives you a visual guide when you're kind of new to YAML. It's, it's very nice. That's one of the primary complaints I hear about YAML as a, a file structure is um, people don't seem to like the tabs Although without structure, there's no order, and without order, it's just chaos. So yeah, quit whining because YAML's amazing, and I'm not. I'm not listening. <laughs> it's readable, right? It's at least readable. It's better than JSON. Yes, which is the alternative. So yes, very much. So down the road, uh, which we'll do a future episode on, I plan to set up my third and last Pi as a Shinobi local camera capture because I have a couple of cameras in the RV now. They go off to cloud storage. It's no good. It's going to go local. Um, but that's down the road. There are a couple of caveats I want to make clear to people. I would not be able to do what I'm doing with Raspberry Pis if I didn't have a big old x86 rig here in the studio doing some of my heavy lifting. Now, that could have easily been a droplet or a Linode VPS. It doesn't have to be a local box. But for me, some of the large job extraction and data processing is happening on the studio land, and then I'm just syncing the essential bits that I need to the RV. And the storage too, because, you know, a, a USB two and a half inch hard drive is limited to about four terabytes, I think. Let's say, I mean, you, you could maybe have half a dozen on the Pi, which is still impressive, granted, but it's not It's not going to match what you can put into a big x86 box. Right, with spinning disks that are, you know, six terabytes or more each, eight terabytes. Um, that is the other limiting factor. What I have gone with is I've tried I've tried to find good deals on uh, USB three SSDs that are powered by the bus, and I just hang that off the Pi. So there's that. Those are the caveats there, as well as of course, in my opinion. Although feel free to tell me otherwise, I'd love to know what's working for you out there. I think on a Raspberry Pi four, the four specifically, Raspbian's really your only bet if you're going to use it in production. For the moment, anyway. Yeah, there's so many drivers and little itsy-bitsy things here. CentOS just got basic boot support, but it's still not very stable. Um, I have reason to believe that the Ubuntu folks may have some work in progress to make it um, a little more doable, including GPU support and whatnot. But right now, if you want to update the firmware on this thing, if you want to take advantage of the GPU and really have the most, I think, stable running Linux system, it, it needs to be Raspbian right now. Which is Debian-based. What do you mean, G- GPU support? Oh, no, I just mean, like, the drivers for GPU acceleration are different. And, in fact, the architecture is completely different. But it's, it's a, it is a different, it is a really different product from the three. It, it looks the same, and it, it has, well, it looks similar, and it has a similar name, 
but it is an entirely different beast. So it does have those caveats. I don't want to come on here and say you can throw out your x86 box with a Raspberry Pi 4. But I do want to say, as somebody who was a big metal, make it as fast and big as possible kind of guy, I'm blown away what I'm doing with these two Raspberry Pis right now. And at this point, I'm going with multiple Raspberry Pis just to sort of isolate things out. I I don't want my DHCP server and DNS server to be on my application server. So I, I'm choosing. I ran Pi-hole on my main Raspberry Pi for a bit just to see if I liked it. And it worked perfectly fine. And then the other thing to bear in mind as well, of course, is application availability. The Pi is, of course, an ARM CPU, not an x86 CPU. So not every piece of software that's ever been written has yet been ported or built for ARM. Uh, Docker containers make it largely irrelevant to a certain degree these days, although it depends whether your container maintainer supports ARM builds. Um, most do, but not all. So that's just something to bear in mind as well. But I think, you know, the, the overall kind of impressions of this device for me is that for the price, you really are going to struggle to match this performance any other way in, in this particular form factor. And that's what really wins out with the Pi is that a couple of things is the form factor, the price and the network effect. There are dozens and dozens of other projects based around the Pi. So if you get bored of hosting these services on the Pi, you could turn it into a full screen calendar that hangs by your front door so that all your family know when you're coming and going. And It is so much the network effect. Like I, I, I'm really curious about systems like the Atomic Pi and other boards that are out there. People are really focusing on Raspbian and Raspberry Pi. So you can like just Google anything and put Raspbian on it and you'll get a guide for it. And that sort of um, network effect makes it so much more approachable for people that are learning how to do this kind of stuff. I, I really can't underestimate it. And I, I can see myself down the road maybe looking at things like Atomic Pi or or even saying, ah, screw all these Raspberry Pis. I'm switching to a big nuck. But right now I'm I'm liking the, the set of compromises and advantages. And with the Pi 4, the price has really – the price performance is just – blew my mind. Way beyond my expectations. Part of taking these things offline in the RV has been this feeling that I own this stuff again. And I've never been bothered by not owning it. Like, never really was, I don't have an issue with that kind of stuff generally. Having it back, I now appreciate it in a way that it gives me, it sounds silly, but it gives me genuine happiness. Like, I feel proud and I'm, I'm happy to have this stuff. Like, I feel like it's mine, like I've created something. But we're able to use technologies like containers to just stand up instances of applications exactly as the developer intended with almost no knowledge of the application itself you know so technologies 10 years ago just didn't permit us to be able to do this kind of stuff no it's it's inter- it's enterprise grade stuff that i'm running on a raspberry pi in my rv <laughs> yeah going that can go that goes down the road at 65 miles per hour it's it's mind blowing and it's it's working and it's only getting better uh, we've talked about this before but we're really at a really special time where web applications are decent Container technology is prevalent, the hardware is cheap enough, and the motivation is there to self-host this stuff. Like, it's such a great time to be doing this. So you heard us mention it a couple of times, but be sure to check out xriz.show. We'll have a special on reverse proxy, 
and a special on the basics of container technologies. So if, if you want to understand some of these fundamentals a little bit, we wanted to cover those early in the, in the lifespan of the show, and we're publishing those in the off weeks of this show at xers.show. And you can also join us in the JB Telegram group. We're using a hashtag AskSSH, both on Telegram and Twitter, for user questions. Um, we've had some really good ones come through, and uh, we will get to those over the next few episodes as well. But uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Ironic Badger and Chris. I'm at Chris LAS. And so thanks everyone for listening. That was selfhosted.show slash three. Thank mm-hmm. you.